Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Episode eight Tales from the Trenches. Welcome everybody to the first episode of the Jamming Fanzine Podcast of the year 2022. If you're a regular listener, you may have been wondering where we got to the last couple of weeks. Well, yes, we took two weeks off for the holidays, and hopefully you did as well. But we are back. This is the Jamming Fanzine Podcast, and as the name suggests, it's a podcast about a fanzine called Jamming. But it's much, much more than that. It's always intended to be a podcast about fanzines in general, even if we're talking about a particular publication during a particular period of time. That would be the fanzine Jamming, of which I, Tony Fletcher, was the editor and publisher from 1977 to 86, and of which a book has just been published, compiling the best of Jamming. And to that end, ever since publishing this book, and indeed, yeah, beforehand as well, it's been very evident to me that there is some form of resurgence of both interest in the fanzines of that post-punk heyday. I'm aware of other people putting together similar books to the best of jamming about their own fanzines or perhaps about their own city's multitude of fanzines. I'm also aware that there are often books published. There's quite a library I'm gathering right now of books about fanzines in general. And I'm aware of lots of people putting out their own small press publications. And that for just about everybody who is doing this, there's an understanding that uh, a book, a fanzine, a little mimeographed A5 fold together, you know, give it to your friend zine means so much more when it's a tactile object than it does when it's just online. So uh, we are kind of willing to keep this podcast going and widen the show's remit, but only if you want us to. So we want to hear from you. We want you to take the time out to look for our social media, uh, which you will find in the show notes of this podcast. We want you to take the time out, please, to go to one of the podcast platforms and leave a rating and or a review. Find some way to let us know that you want us to keep this going. And we will kind of, you know, have a look and make our own decision in the next uh, in the next few weeks. It's certainly been a success up to now. It's had some great listening figures, but I don't want to deny it's a fair bit of work and yeah, nobody's getting anything for it except the love. And beyond the love, there is also the joy of reuniting with people. This episode is an absolute perfect example of it. I got three of Jamming's most prolific former contributors together. They are Bruce Dessau, Ross Fortune and Paul Davies. And uh, it was the first time the four of us had actually ever been in a room together, even a Zoom room. And that's partly because Paul and Ross did not live in London back in the day. So they were not in the Jamming office too often. It's perhaps indicative of just how much work uh, at least one of them put in in such a short space of time that you'll hear Bruce Dessau uh, right at the beginning of this interview say he, he contributed to jamming for five years. And actually, it was just 1984 and 1985 that that was the period we put out the most words, the most issues in the shortest space of time. Uh, it's a fun conversation. I think it's fun. You will hear lots of anecdotes. You will hear a lot about the very blurred lines between the interviewer and interviewee, which I think was a good thing. Um, you'll hear certainly some stories of uh, alcohol being involved, and you're going to hear anecdotes about the likes of Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and the Jesus and Mary chain and Robert Smith and Pauline Black and all kinds of other people. I hope you have fun with it. I will be back at the end to clear up any loose ends 
and also to give you the information on three book events taking place in the UK in late February, which I'm really excited about. But for now, I want to leave you with the conversation. And yes, it's been edited a little bit. And so if you hear the odd uh, equivalent of a Tipex or glue mark, so what? It's a fanzine podcast. Episode 8, Tales from the Trenches. you want to buy a copy of jamming so let's go around the metaphorical table and introduce ourselves and i have a feeling bruce that you and i have known each other the longest i've known you through jamming i know that some people you've spoken to before you were at school with i know you from uh, jamming from probably all either autumn 83 or early 84 that's around the time that i started got to know you and started writing and uh, I think I must have written for Jamming for about five years. Uh, very exciting times indeed. Oh, and I'm Bruce Dessau, if I haven't said my name. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ross Fortune. I wrote for Jamming from issue 16 through 31, I think. It got me started in music journalism. I, I, I worked a time out for 15 years where, where I was music editor. In 2004, I moved to, to America and I now own a, a music venue bar in, in Texas. Just, just south of Austin. I, I'm Paul Davis. I wrote for, for Jammin, similar to Rotary, issues 17 to 32. So I started towards the tail end of 83 and was there pretty much till the end, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I've always wanted to write about music and went through the whole fanzine thing like Tony did and then tried to kind of break into music journalism and I don't quite remember how I got uh, Jamin's contacts, but I just hunted off some speculative reviews. And Tony was good enough to um, give some positive feedback, published a few. And before I knew it, I was on the train to London interviewing Tony Parsons, which was just great for me. Yeah, and I just read that piece, actually, just a few minutes ago. Uh, Bruce, you wrote in the book about, and it, it's funny because the moment you mentioned this, it all came back to me. But if I had been asked how I met you, I would have just assumed you probably came into jamming. But actually, you'd been around to my house before that, I think. Yeah, I think it was just um, mutual friends or even possibly mutual girlfriends. I'm not sure. But but I'd been to a gig. In, I was living in South London myself at the time, and I'd been to a show, and I think one afternoon, uh, yeah, a, a gig in a park in South London. I think after the show, the person I was with said, uh, they knew you and said, oh, let, I've got, let's pop over and see Tony Fletcher. And I knew, obviously, I knew, who, I knew exactly who you were. You know, I knew Jamin, I knew your band as well. I think it was about six months later that I contacted, I, I sort of had the idea, I just left college and I didn't really know what I was going to do. There weren't many jobs around then. I um, contacted you sort of out of the blue, really, and just said, oh, I'd really love to write for Jamin. And you were, you know, you were really supportive. I think that was, that was the thing about the magazine that I remember. I like to think that you saw that I had something, that I had enthusiasm for the subject. And, you know, I, I, and you were very supportive and enthusiastic about getting that, those kind of people onto the magazine. So it's a sort of mutual, um, mutual thing that worked out for both of us, I hope. I'm still a journalist now. And, you know, it really all started with Jamin. Yeah, and you write, uh, you have this great memory that you write about in the book. Um, do you mind recapping it about me? Actually, uh, you came to see me, and then I gave you a, more or less a lift home, I guess. I came up for a meeting with you, and, you know, I didn't have a file of cuttings. I didn't have things I'd written somewhere else I could show you and say, you know, I, didn't, I don't even think I submitted a sample review or anything. I just came and said, look, I love the magazine. I love music. I really want to write. I think we also talked maybe about writing about film and uh, you kind of just went, yeah, you know, it was almost like that, when can you start type of uh, thing. And I said to you something like, um, oh, by the way, Tony, how, how do you know I can even write? I've ne you've never seen anything I've written. And uh, I think you said something like, you know, your enthusiasm, you obviously know the subject and you love music. Um, I'm sure you can do it. And, and that's what I mean. You were just so supportive of me. When, I think I went and bought a second-hand typewriter that week and... Uh, got on with it. Ross, what was your foundation? Paul had been doing a fanzine. Where, where did you grow up and how did you approach jamming? I'd like to ask both Rob, Ross and Paul, why approach jamming? Did you approach other magazines? Ross, would you go first on that? I, I did a fanzine in Manchester called Only Heroes, which went to two issues, the second of which wasn't published. And then I moved to Liverpool. And I, I can't remember how I, I got in touch I really can't. I, I, it's funny, I, I sat down last night 
and I, I got all my old uh, jammy magazines out and I, I got some 80s vinyl and I got a glass of wine and I, I sat down and I got uh, uh, issue 16 and my name's on, on the uh, on the masthead as, as a contributor. I couldn't find anything in it and I went to 17 and there's nothing in it, 18 and there's nothing in it. And then I realised that I must at some point in time have torn out all, all the pages that had, had, had my stuff on. And over, over the years, I've kept these copies of the magazine. I have no idea where my pieces are. <laughs> um, but I do want to ask Paul and uh, Paul and Ross, both of you, was, was writing for jamming any more important than writing for anything else? Well, for me, um, I, I, I'd been trying to kind of get stuff published all over the place in the usual way, you know, letters to Sands, Enemy, Melody Maker, and sending off... Uh, long handwritten reviews to the live reviews desk and, and not getting that far. So to then get something sent to you and, and get some positive feedback on it and get published, that was, for me, that was like getting a foothold because it was something that I always wanted to do was write about music. And even when I was like 16, I remember I bought this book from the back of the enemy called uh, An Introduction to Rock Journalism. It's got some absolute pearls in it. So I, I, might, I, I might scan that into some time and send it to you. But that, that was great. Um, and then after, after school, I sort of went to university, I flunked out after a couple of months. And it's like punk was happening and it was, everything was going on. So we, we, we started a fanzine, a bunch of friends. And uh, I just so happened to have one of the copies here. Oh, Cardiff up yours, uh, seminal, up yours. seminal thing. Fantastic. Thin, thin, thin Lizzie and the Sex Pistols. I don't feel half so bad about having Thin Lizzie and jamming. Yeah, it was, to me, it was like bands like the Thin Lizzie were kind of as important as The Clash because we used to follow them around and like The Clash did, they would let people in. You know, we didn't have tickets after the time. We'd follow them off around the country and they would just let us in. We got to know them. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't just like starting again from the Pistols and the Clash. It was some of that stuff. And then when, you, when we did our first fanzine, then obviously some of that stuff kind of uh, crept in, you know, so hence Phil Liner on the cover with uh, the Pistols. And, but it was, that was like, for me, that we did the fanzine, we did two issues of that. But I always wanted to kind of pursue it as, a, I don't know, not, not career. I don't suppose you'd call it career, but just do it more seriously. And jamming gave me a foothold, you know, and I always look, I look back on it, as I said to you before, Tony, with great fondness. Um, it had the ethos of a fanzine, but it had kind of a loftier ambition. It was, it was like a great, great magazine, you know, and I think in many ways a precursor of a lot of magazines that followed it in the monthly uh, press. You know, if it hadn't been for magazines like Jamming, I don't think Q magazine would have been the same type of thing, you know. I mean, they were kind of a bit more grown up, if you like. But I loved the fact that the um, the enthusiasm of the contributors just ran through jamming like like a seam, you know. And and it, they, you know, primarily we loved music and we loved those bands, and we were trying to capture that passion. Really, I think that's that's what set it apart. Yeah, one thing I'm getting from all of us straight away is that wanting to be a music journalist back in the early '80s was of any kind, whether it was doing your own fanzine, writing for jamming or wanting to write for the enemy, it was, it was a pretty noble job. You know, it was a decent thing to aspire towards. I noticed that it kind of all came together. Actually, Ross, it is quite funny. Issue 17, you had a lovely piece on Pauline Black, and I'm still kicking myself for not putting her name on the cover. I think that was your first substantial piece for us. But issue 19 uh, is a pretty good issue, and all three of you have something re relatively substantial in there. In fact, Ross, you have that big center page interview with Joe Strummer, which is in the book, and you have a big piece on Mike Scott, who himself wrote a little piece for the book. Bruce, you have what looks like your first full page on the cinema, which then became a regular column. And Paul, that's the issue that you have Tony Parsons, uh, your Tony Parsons interview, which I think is your first piece. So there is this moment um, somewhere in the spring of 1984 where the three of you are part of like the bedrock of, of what was a, 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 for jamming was a really great year um, in terms of what we what we put out and you're all kind of finding your, your place there. And um, particularly for you, Bruce, you know, you come at this from a slightly different angle because you talked about writing about the movies. And I think I said, yeah, I was, I was hoping somebody would do that. And, and you were, you were ready to do a column. So that became something that you had 
in addition to other people. You, I mean, you took that very seriously. I'm looking and you put in substantial movie reviews in a, in a one-page article every single month for, or every single other month for quite a while. Yeah. Well, you know, it took a bit of organising, but it was nice to get to films and get to see, you know, again, my, my first experience as a journalist, going to previews, getting free sandwiches in Wardour Street, you know, it was all part of the fun. And, you know, you just, again, get, it's just a very parallel thing to the music thing. You know, I loved cinema. As you say, I think that was what I mentioned to you the first time we met. And <laughs> um, so I wanted to see all the films. I mean, one of the interesting things about that, I'm not sure when the piece appeared, but I suggested we do an interview with Barry Norman. And um, it reminded me, of, I was thinking about this the other night, how different the whole machinery of, of, of public relations work. I got the interview by, with Barry Norman by literally getting the uh, BBC TV centre phone number out of the phone directory, if you can remember the big phone directories, got the BBC number out, said, can I speak to Barry Norman, please? They put me through to the Film 84 offices. Someone said, oh, sorry, Barry's working from home today. Here's his home phone number. Gave me Barry Norman's home phone number. I rang him up and he was very courteous, very kind, gave me his time. And we set the interview up. So, yeah, I mean, doing the film stuff, was a sort of nice, nice string to my bone, nice thing to do. And I think also, yeah, from the point of jamming, I guess you like the fact that it kind of film was as, you know, a part of popular culture, that the kind of people that were interested in the kind of music in the magazine would also be interested in films. I always wanted us to have a wide remit and everybody came to us saying, can I interview Morrissey, I guess, you know, or Weller, something like that. Everybody would love to have had that gig. But I always wanted us to have books. I wanted us to have just, you know, the, maybe a poetry column and have a film column and never shy away from the political articles to be able to write about people that were in sports, in movies, on TV, and just be more of a culture magazine. And, you know, talking of that access and the ease of access, I mean, that's a great um, entry point for what I thought would be a really you know, good sort of meat of this conversation to ask you about your most memorable interviews and maybe about the way that they were conducted because that same issue of jamming that you that the three of you came together your cover story actually so here's the thing it wasn't the cover story we put frankie on the cover um and maybe partly because the clash didn't have an album out at the time and nobody was quite sure what was going to come next but i read your interview with uh, Strama word for word today. It's a good one, Ross. What do you remember about that encounter? You write something about it for the book. Can you take us through that a bit? I just remember being naive, enthusiastic, passionate and stupid. Uh, and like, like, like Bruce says, the, the, the ease of access was, was kind of phenomenal. I think I, found that, I think I found CBS, got through to the press office. They fobbed me off with Cosmo Vinyl's number who was managing uh, the, the, the band at the time. And I, I just phoned him every day. But I, I never told you, I never told Jamming. And for, for, for three, four weeks, I, I just pursued this until finally they, 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 Cosmo relented and um, arranged an interview before a gig at the Brixton Academy. Um, and I, I just showed up and it was just me and Strummer in the dressing room. Um, and he was magnificent. You, you know, you did a uh, you did a good job of taking Joe to task while clearly still revering him, which I think is the balance that we often tried to strike. I do want to uh, reference, though, you uh, in the book you mentioned. I mean, take us through it because you talk about your nerves caused you to uh, uh, commit a, a classic rookie faux pas. Correct. I mean, it, it was just me and Strummer in the dressing room, and there was this big galvanized tub full of, of beer. Uh, and Coke, and, and I think bottles of water. And Strummer just sort of said, help yourself. And he, he wasn't drinking. And like I said, I was in there for like an hour and, and I, I kept reaching in, getting beer after beer after beer. And then finally the rest of the band started to traipse in and the interview kind of wound up. And I, I thought, I'll just have one last beer. And I, I reached in and I, I was trawling through. My, my hands were kind of numb with, with the ice and there was no more beer left. And I, I, I trunked, trunked the Clash's beer. Um, I, 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 I think as I write in the book, that was a badge I wore proudly for a while. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one to have. And I can understand, actually, with the with the nerves from that. And nobody said anything, I hope, or did they? I was out the door before they, they probably realised. <laughs> and uh, Bruce, just you were mentioning about Barry Norman. Do you recall that being maybe the first major interview you did? Oh, possibly. Maybe we did that to sort of launch the sort of film column. Um 
But I did, I, I did loads of great interviews. I mean, it's uh, the thing about Joe Strummer. I mean, I, I think I think I actually wrote I think I wrote one piece for you that won't be in the won't be in the uh, book because I don't think you ran it. And I it's that question of um, never meet your heroes. And I think most of the people I met through jamming. I think were fantastic. You know, I think most of them lived up to expectations. And sadly, I think the only one that didn't was Mick Jones. And I interviewed him around, obviously, for Big Audio Dynamite after, after well, probably not long after Ross, but, but the, that era. It, again, talking about the access thing, what was great about it was we did the interview in his flat in Notting Hill. So it wasn't in a record company office. It was, I think, Magenta Divine was his manager at the time or his publicist. And they just gave me the address and I went round to the flat. And I think he might have smoked something <laughs> before, I think it's fair to say. He was just very giggly. I couldn't, I didn't get a lot of sense out of him. And for someone like, same Strummer, for Mick Jones, someone that was so, had been so important to me for all those years, I was kind of disappointed. So maybe it was my, my fault the piece didn't run. Maybe I didn't get enough out of him maybe in my disillusionment with him. But I think that might have been one piece that, that, that didn't run in jamming. Yeah, there's always going to be maybe one negative experience. When I've spoken with Mick, he's been great. Interestingly, there was clearly a lot of bad blood still between Joe and Mick in that uh, Clash interview that Ross did. Uh, Joe's complaining about the lawyers sending writs every other day. And, you know, they made it up soon enough and Joe camped out at the BAD's second album studio sessions and slept under the uh, mixing board, I believe, and ended up co-producing it. Um, but well, what about the more memorable encounters? If for you, Paul, your first major piece for us was Tony Parsons, you know, he's an interesting one because that was he was a writer who had become something of an icon. Tony Parsons was great. He met us off the train, took us into the Pride of Paddington pub and we just sat there all afternoon. Uh, chatting really he, he kept on buying us drinks um we got onto the vodkas and cokes at the end of the afternoon so yeah yeah that, that was that was a great uh, great one for me to be honest very good let's let's go around ross you did a lot of interviews for us some 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 major names some some less major names can you um can you relive any of them for us in terms of you know p- particularly memorable people or memorable encounters or indeed disappointments that you may have had i mean strong was the was the most memorable in a, in, a, in a positive sense, in, in a less less positive sense, Gil Scott Heron, uh, who I was a, a big admire, admirer of. Um, and I interviewed him backstage after a show at the, the Liverpool Empire. And he, he was high and he, he was drunk and he was an asshole. Um, but what, what, what was weird about it was he was an asshole to me for about half an hour during the interview. Which is fine because I was this spiky-haired little white kid asking him questions about social political import in, in a black community in America or whatever. But after the interview wound up, fans who had gathered in, in the corridor outside the, the, the dressing room were allowed in to meet him and to get autographs. And he, he started to kind of treat me as his kind of buddy and he made these really snide asides about his fans and, and put them down. And it was suddenly as if I was, I was, I, the two of us were, were, were really close and we were patronizing toward, towards the fans. And it, it just kind of felt really uncomfortable. Um, and at, at that time, I'd, I'd never heard about him having kind of um, addictions or, or anything like that. You just heard it, the, the songs, the bottle or angel dust or whatever, kind of um, articulately warning of the dangers of, of, of alcohol and, and, and drugs. And years later, it, it kind of came out that, that he did have, have, have this addiction problem. And without being nasty, that, that I felt that kind of validated my piece because I'd, I'd never seen anyone else criticise him uh, or, or highlight that before. So, so that, that was my, my most disappointing. And then the inter- there was an interview that never happened with Morrissey, which uh, highlights... To, to how long ago it was, because I, I was living in, in, in a flat in Liverpool. I had a telephone, which not, not all my friends did. I didn't have an answer machine. And it later transpired that, that Jamming had been trying to contact me to see if I'd interviewed Morrissey while I was in Liverpool. And I, I never got the phone calls, no answer machine, never got the message. So I, I went downstairs one day to get the mail, and there was a postcard from Jamming saying, will you interview Morrissey at 11 o'clock at the Adelphi Hotel. And it was that day and it was like 10.30. 
So I, I threw a tape recorder in my bag and a notebook, and I lived about 10 minutes away from the, from the city centre, so I kind of stormed off down there. And I got there just as John Wilder was starting the interview, um, and he, he'd come up, on, come up on the train that day. But it's crazy to think that there was just, the communication was just so archaic. Thank you for sharing that memory, because that was how things were. And, and with the relation to Gil Scott Heron, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things there. Number one, without an internet, there was less room for gossip. So somebody could write a song about the bottle and you wouldn't necessarily know that they were you know, still having their own problems or having problems with other substances. It would often only come out through interviews where people were very coy, like a journalist might, you know, only a, a Tony Parsons would really be brave enough to say, this person was doing this in front of me. You would just have to insinuate that there were problems with this person because we had the music press, but we weren't sharing gossip across any other kind of platform. I think there is something that you alluded to there, which is, you know, we're coming from one cultural background and it's great when we're interviewing the Morrisseys and the Robert Smiths of this world. But when we're interviewing people who come from a completely different cultural background, very often the interview part is, it's not important to them. It's not how they communicate. And I learned that when I moved to America and with a lot of like, hip hop artists, a lot of rappers I interviewed and, and even within the soul music field, which I love and the people are so friendly, the interview process has never been like, let's sit down for a long interview. That's not how they communicate. So I think that, you know, yeah, you caught Gil Scott Heron on the back at the end of a bad night at a bad time in his life. And, you know, if that's the only person that you met that was a disappointment, I guess that's still a good batting average, right? Paul, you wrote about, you had a couple of cover stories for us, at least a couple. And you wrote, uh, one of them was Robert Smith, who I was really glad we got in jamming because we didn't do enough like uh, around that area, really. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that we did. Uh, but you actually wrote, I'm going to quote here, that arranging an interview with Robert Smith, that it would have been marginally easier organizing a round of golf with the pontiff. Yeah, I, I I do remember that was the tricky one. And uh, on the day itself, we were meeting in, I think it was some photographic studio in South London or something. And because Robert was doing this extended photo session, he was literally keeping me waiting for hours. And I was just thinking, I'm going to miss my train here. And the, there was a, like a frantic press officer who was running around and then asking me if I wanted some beer from the off-license and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it, it was a bit... Uh, uh, crazy at the before the interview. I mean, he he was fine. He was uh, he was good to interview. He was. I mean, I I, I kind of sort of took issue with him a little bit because I I was kind of uh, one of those naive young people who were expecting a lot from the artists that uh, I was talking to. You know, so when he started going on about uh, politics and being a, an SDP voter and Labour and the Tories are all the same. I was just like glazing over and thinking, oh, my God. But then again, you know, should we expect that kind of political insight from a band who clearly have got nothing, no axe to grind politically? They're just making pretty incredible music, you know. So, I mean, that, that was a good one. Um, something sort of related to what Ross was saying when I um, interviewed John Cooper Clark in Cardiff, that was that was a good one. And it, kind of, it was like a continuum in a way because it was the first... Uh, review I got published and then one of the first interviews as well and so he he was performing in Cardiff my home city which was great and he was doing a co-headlining tour with Nico at the time and Nico was his partner at the time and you know it's the ultimate chemical romance apparently but I was like 24 years old and completely naive about this I didn't know what the hell was going on and he, he was great company and, uh, you know, he was very accommodating, but he was incredibly edgy and in the, uh, in the dressing room. And he was constantly asking his manager if this package had arrived at Cardiff Central Station. And I'm thinking, what could this package possibly be, you know? And then only like years, literally years later, it clicked that I don't know, that's what the package was. But it was just quite funny in retrospect, looking back on it, how, how naive I was. And, uh, but he was fine. He was, he was good company and got some good quotes out of him. He was good. The naivety played into our favor a lot of times. And there was a really interesting review got published just a couple of days ago of, of the book. And it, 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 uh, the, the guy clearly read the book almost cover to cover. And he was sort of saying, you know, worthy may sound like a, 
you know, a negative word. That's really what he, he used the word worthy. But he was saying that, you know, back then, that was actually a relatively noble goal. If you, if your alternatives were Julie Birchall with a communist manifesto or the, you know, the other hipsters uh, trying to tell you how damn hip they were, there, there was a certain worthiness and earnestness to Jamming's interviews, which, you know, could, could flip both ways as a criticism or a compliment. But one thing I'm very aware of, um, we all tended to take our interviewees to, or hold their feet to the fire. And we did have this political edge to jamming. And it came into your film reviews as well, Bruce. Maybe not so much the artists that you interviewed. But we did kind of expect our interviewees to have something to say about the state of the world. And the state of the world was Thatcher and Reagan. And so interviewing a Robert Smith, or indeed you interviewed Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears for us, Paul, and just because they were pop groups to some degree and, you know, the, the cure a pop group as much as a goth group didn't mean that you didn't want to ask them those questions. And I think we went to everybody and really asked them to sort of justify their place in the world. And if that was naivety and earnestness and worthiness, it's not a bad quality to have, I would, I would say. What do the rest of you think about that? I think that's right, yeah. And one of the people I interviewed, who's actually a, a completely lovely bloke, Mike Peters, um, looking back, because like most of us, I'm probably going back through some of those old interviews, and I was thinking, what a hard time I gave the poor guy, you know. And you, uh, you were really I, aggressive, really aggressive. I, I know. I don't know what I was thinking of, but I mean, he was such a lovely guy. And I've met him several times since, and he's always been so so nice, you know. And uh, but I, I I think I, I was kind of in that mindset that I wanted everybody to be Strummer or Weller or Christine of the Redskins, you know, and. And as much as I, I did lo- like the alarm a lot, you know, and um, but th- there was a kind of they they felt like a kind of of an impersonation in some way. So, yeah, but he was great. He was, you know, he, he didn't get aggrieved about it. He was just trying to explain himself and what the band are trying to do, and and that was fine. Yeah, and I think it was maybe a fanzine ethic that held through the the the, the magazine days. A lot of these pieces that we're talking about. If they're not questioning an answer, what I love about the Robert Smith interview, Paul, is after your intro, it's all Robert in his own words until you wrap it up. Your Clash interview is a Q&A, Ross, a couple of your other pieces. And I think it's, um, you know, that was something that we had over the mainstream music press for the most part was that we kind of wanted, we would either question an answer and you could see what we were asking them or we would just try and summarize in between their quotes. We would really be trying to let the artists speak for themselves, even if we were holding their feet to the fire. You, you know, Bruce, would that speak true, true of the kind of interviews you did for us? You interviewed Roddy Frame is a good example, maybe? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We weren't, you know, I think we we're all of the same generation. Of, you know, we were politicized, you know, by punk, you know, as you said, whether it was The Clash or The Jam or... Paul Weller and Strummer. These are the people that we've grown up with. So when we did the interviews, you know, obviously we talked to the people about politics. I remember that Roddy Frame interview well. I mean, again, you know, another great thing about you was we sort of graduated through jamming, through smaller pieces to larger pieces. And I think the Aztec Camera one was the first big piece I did. Um, and yeah, Rod- Roddy was a very articulate person. I, I mean, that's the thing. And we weren't cynical. I don't think, I mean, that's the thing. Maybe some of the enemy era enemy journalists were more cynical I think we weren't trying to stitch people up you know we were fans but we also were prepared to sort of push them and ask them ask them questions and if they were articulate enough I think Roddy was I mean how he was younger than us wasn't he he was so young and so articulate and so clever and so passionate I have to say just as a sidebar though the thing I remember the most about being given the chance to do a big interview uh, and again, how times have changed. I think that Roddy Frame, maybe I had 90 minutes with him at the Warner Brothers office, and it was a 90-minute interview, and on a manual typewriter. The worst part of being a journalist was interviewing people with jamming, was transcribing the interviews. Uh, you know, it took for hours and hours to transcribe, because he had so much to say. It took hours and hours to transcribe that interview. And I have to say, I'm glad the technology, you know, we were talking about communication earlier, that transcribing technology has come on, and you can do that sort of... Uh, using apps and whatever. But, you know, body frame, every word he said was important. And it's a long feature. We packed a a lot of words into the three pages you you had with Roddy, because like you say, he's articulate. And um, yeah, I mean, what a, you know, I I loved him. And, uh, you know, glad that you were able to work up to those pieces. We've already mentioned a couple of times it's come into play here that 
it was very common to drink with the bands. I mean, and and I think we grew up in a you know a very very boozy Britain. It's still pretty boozy, but you wouldn't you know you're more likely to get carded if you're a teenager these days. But we grew up in a very boozy environment. Uh, Bruce, you wrote for the the book about you know your memories of emptying a uh, a minibar or being allowed into the minibar with who was it again? Yeah, I was slightly when I reflected on what I'd written for you, and I think I think you might have cut it down a bit in the end, and I'm great, grateful for that. A lot of my anecdotes seem to be based around alcohol. It would be either backstage or, as you say, like a bit like Ross's interview with Joe Strum. You'd be interviewing someone in the record company offices, and you know, as again, as a young kid with that a lot without having much access to money, they, you know, the press officer would open the fridge, and there'd be kind of bottles of booze, spirits, whatever. You know, the nice thing about the job was on the one hand, you had a piles of records and the publicist would say, help yourself to the records you like. On the other side, you'd have the alcohol. And yeah, I mean, I think it was the culture then. Um, I think, you know, within within certain limits, but yeah, on the road as well. I mean, certainly again, like Ross, if you're with a band backstage, you kind of, you know, you got to see the riders that bands had and, uh, you know, you took, you were invited, you weren't, you know, it was all part of what you were doing. And yeah, and also because you, you could get that close relationship. That it, same way, you know, you're saying like the Clash or, or, or the band, you know, Thin Lizzy would let you in backstage and let, 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 let fans in. As a journalist, you seem to be allowed to be back, backstage with bands. There wasn't any of a, a publicist sort of shutting the band away and keeping the band away from the journalists, which again gave you good stories and good, good access. I mean, it's a shame they don't do that now. I think, I think you know, journalists would get much better stories if they had the same access. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the band, sometimes there was almost like a, I don't know if it was a test. I don't think it was as conscious as that. But I think that if you could last an evening drinking with them, you know, you somehow did pass the test. You were on the inside. You know, they wanted, they, they often wanted you to be with them. I think it was a lot harder to sort of be standoffish, which, um, you know, we did have a couple of writers that were good at being able to keep that distance. But I, I genuinely think that was part of the culture and it was, it was expected at times of us. You also, Bruce, carved out um, a little, not a complete niche entirely for yourself, but you, you followed a certain strand of music and just looking at the back issues, you know, whereas Ross and Paul were sent off to interview some of the, sort of the cover stars and some big names, you, you got into uh, that, that very sort of spiky, spiky pop, didn't you? Yeah, sort of, I suppose, shambling as John Peel, the shambling saying it. It's funny, you know, that was the creation scene, I suppose, wasn't it? Creation Records, is that what you're thinking of? It was creation, but um, there, were, there were other groups besides, because what was it you wrote here? Um, yeah, you wrote that you got into groups that had a scruffy punk spirit, but a more accessible pop sensibility. So whether it was the June Brides or um, Micro, I mean, you wrote about Micro Disney, yeah, uh, you, you, you know, uh, Big Beat Records, you know, there was a lot of stuff that you wrote about. And that was, that was very, very much going on that it wasn't just creation. There were other labels out there that were, that were releasing that kind of music. And it was, mm. it was a happening thing in 84, 85, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, those are the gigs. Again, it's nice to, again, be given the opportunity. Again, I guess it's those words that we sort of come back to enthusiasm and passion and those are the gigs you know I was going to the big gigs as well you know the Vixen Academy or the Apollo or Hammersmith Odeon wasn't it in those days not the Apollo it was Hammersmith Odeon but but it was those small gigs you know the Polytechnica Central London or the Clarendon in Hammersmith or those small clubs that you go to gigs you know two or three times a week and those are the bands you know those rough trade bands as well that were breaking through Again, it's weird thinking about the communication thing again. I don't even know how I knew about half of those gigs. I mean, it must have been, obviously, there were listings in the NME, but sometimes what would happen is you'd go to one gig and at the gig, you know, a pub in Islington or something, you'd get a flyer for where the band was playing the following week and you'd find out about it there. Or I was lucky. I did have a very early, uh, a huge answer phone. I mean, my answer phone was the size of a, you know, an old fashioned Apple Mac. And yeah, you get in in the evening, you get messages of where things were happening and you'd follow them through that. But that was a very exciting scene. I guess it became known as what, C86 as well, but you know, the C86 scene, but you know, the primal scream. And I got, you know, I got to go on tour with the Jesus and Mary chain around Europe. I mean, that was exciting. Um, I'm not even sure if I wrote a piece about it, um, but Alan McGee, 
who I'd, I'd seen, you know, met very early on at one of these gigs in in Tottenham Court Road, um, invited me on the road with them, and I think I la- I think I lasted about five days on the road with the Jesus and Mary Chain. Although I did very quickly, I'll say, I, I, I did one, I did get to play with the Jesus and Mary Chain because again, going back to the communication thing, we were travelling in two separate VW vans, and the van that William Reed was in, the guitarist, broke down. We had no way of contacting them, so when we got to the gig. Someone else had to play guitar, and uh, at one point, I ended up picking up the guitar and playing with the Jesus and Mary chain for about five minutes. But it was uh, five minutes that I've been eating out on ever since. <laughs> it also speaks again to that. You go on the road with a band, you're expected to mix with them. Honestly and truly, the, the boundaries were very, very, very blurred, and they were blurred to the extent that you could actually be a stand-in for the Mary chain. So you, you, you mentioned that in the piece you wrote for the book. I personally don't remember you handing in an article about that it's possible that you came back and said it's all just like such a blur but you did go off and do a piece on creation records um and after which we famously lost all the record sleeves i gather oh yeah that was one you know again it's if i there were two things if i had two regrets about writing for jamming one is it um uh, it taught me to bank the checks quicker because I think when you uh, had a bit of a financial uh, crisis, I, I, my checks all bounced because I hadn't got to the bank and banked them. So it taught me uh, taught me about financial management. And secondly, yeah, I think I probably said in the article, you know, I lent you all the sleeves to do the uh, layout for a piece of creation records, and they got lost between the printers and the office. And I said something like, "Oh, don't worry, no one's ever going to want to collect creation records." You know, don't worry about it. And now I just, I've still got the records, but I haven't got the sleeves. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, it happens. If it helps at all, uh, I only found out uh, recently that the Sunday Mirror managed to lose Anthony Blompier's photographs of Paul McCartney. Um, so, you know, at least there are further sleeves around. There are other, other people who have uh, creation record sleeves. But we were doing profiles on the labels and... Um, you 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 did one on Big Beat as well, and we we did one on Creation. I think you were like spot on in terms of writing about them. We were writing about the Mary Chain. We were generally um, we were generally on track with the the bands that we wrote about uh, at that point. Did did either of the other views have any any regrets of any kind? Is there anything that that like if you you know it's always a fun fun question. You know if you went back now, is there anything that you would do different? Anybody that you would handle differently? Or is there any interview that you really wish you had gotten that for some reason didn't come together? Either I wouldn't give you the green light or we just couldn't make it happen. Ross, you're laughing. Is there something comes to mind? You, you arranged for the first Lloyd Cole album to be sent to me to review, um, which I was looking forward to. And the, the postman folded it in half to get it through the letterbox. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, <laughs> had the postman never seen a record before? I don't know. That's that's just brilliant. So I mean, I've had a, I've had a few records arrive broken, but I've never known a postman to fold it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So you didn't review the album for so, us, I take so it. No, no, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Paul, any uh, any anything that you look back on that like you that that you would really handle differently, or any 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 particular missed opportunities? In terms of the interviews I did, I don't think so. I, I think the approach I took was probably the right one. Um, I mean, I, I did wonder what would have happened if I'd have got that full-timer's job at, towards the end, but, I mean, it probably wouldn't have lasted long, but uh, it was it was fun to think how, what direction my life would have gone if I'd have got that, you know, so that was interesting. Um, the, the thing that struck me when I was going through the book was I don't think many of us really understood how precarious the whole operation was, you know, because from the outside, all I could see was uh, a magazine that seemed to be flourishing and to be getting more uh, attention. And, you know, you'd see it in W.A. Smith's and stuff. And, you, and I thought this is building into something really uh, impressive here. And then we, you know, had no idea that the, the kind of juggling that you were doing in the background. So all, all respect to you for keeping it afloat for so long, really. Yeah. And I know, um, Bruce, we've talked about this a couple of times because I guess being in London, we stayed in touch a little while longer. And and yeah, you had, you had not gotten to the bank at one point um, with two or three issues worth of of checks. The, hor- the, the, the horrific truth about it is just like cash flow. Hell, it was successful on the surface, but it, it's 
it's it's what you write about at the end of the book, Russ. There's really no plan. It's naivety. It's youthful enthusiasm. Everything that was great about jamming was also its downfall. And interest rates, people forget that in the 80s, interest rates were like 15 to 20%, which was great if you were a millionaire. But if you're like, you know, if a bank's loaning you money to do a magazine, you just turn around and every single month, the, your, your debt's gone up, you know, another few percent. And you're trying to borrow more because you need to get another issue out. And, you know, your mum's put her house down as collateral. And then one day the whole thing comes tumbling down. And it's like, holy, you know, it was really bad. And, and so, you know, we were always trying to pay the writers something. And I did feel that we had a team spirit going, particularly in that period that we're talking about here with the four of us sort of issues. It's really issues 15 to 32. It's a mainstay of, of a fanzine that turned into a magazine. I felt that there was a team spirit. And what I'm getting from, from you guys is that, yeah, there was a team spirit. Yeah, definitely. I was just going to say, if the money had been important, I would have banked the checks more quickly. So, um, I mean, yes, it was nice to get your foot in the door with journalism and particularly music journalism. But at the same time, you know, it was it was a sort of a, a bond. You know, we got to know each other. You know, it's it's hard being freelance because you don't often come into the office. But I think things like that, because I had to bring the sleeves in. Well, also in those days, you had to come into the office to bring the copy in. There was no you couldn't even get a fax machine in those days. I don't know, Ross. How did you deliver copy? Did you post it? How did you get copy to jam in when you wrote articles? I think I must have mailed it in. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, going off on a slight tangent, I, I started to do live reviews for the NME, and they would always want the, 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 the copy the, the very next morning. And I remember there was a way you could walk down to Lime Street Station and you could put an envelope on the train to London and get it collected at the other end. And, and, and I think you'd get paid like 20 quid for a review but it cost you 12 quid to, to, to get it to, to, yeah. to the paper. Yeah, I had the same thing. Uh, I used to write for uh, The Listener, the BBC magazine, The Listener. And because they needed it quickly, I'd have to get a bus all the way across London. And sometimes I think it's taken me longer to deliver it than it took me to write it. Yeah, it's very true. What about for you, Paul? Picking up on some, something that was said earlier about the access and the difference between being in London and being outside of London, I don't think I got to meet you until um, very late on. It might have even been the, the interview for the full-timers job because it was just telephone conversations or I'd thrown you from a phone box and ask you stuff about the next uh, the next assignment, putting a 10p in and the pips were going and you'd say something. I'd say, well, I didn't catch that. I put another 10p in. And that's the way you did business. You know, and It was just quite fun looking back and thinking about that, really. It touches on something uh, that I don't want to let uh go particularly uh, let the interview finish without uh, touching on ross you being from liverpool and paul you being from cardiff for me running jamming yes yeah, sure we were based in london at that point i thought london was the center of the world but i was always keen to have writers who were based somewhere else and you know that that mattered that mattered to me obviously it meant that you had to mail your copy which just meant your deadlines were even earlier but did you feel that there was a sense in terms of of with jamming that we weren't trying to be too london centric that we would be we'd be willing to listen to what ideas you had about you know bands and things happening in other places where you came from liverpool whatever i mean paul funny enough you're not the one from liverpool but you wrote a little piece about um the high five and the farm as a little you know up-and-coming liverpool bands right yeah, I remember that very well because, uh, and it also touches on something we talked about earlier about the political edge that Jamin had as well because it was in the in the heart of the miners' strike and Liverpool is a strong left-wing city, as you know, and they had a big benefit from the miners and that's where I met up with the High Five and the Farm. And yeah, that it was, I think it was important to shine a light on the provinces and because st- st- it's not just about London, is it? And as much as a, a thrill it was to come... To, to do those day trips to London, get the train down and meet people. It was also good, you know, I, I did a, a thing with the Faith Brothers where not quite as glamorous as uh, Bruce's. It was just Bristol to Cardiff rather than a five-day <laughs> European tour. So well, I live in Cardiff anyway, so it wasn't much of a trek, but <laughs> that was still good fun, you know, and it's like being on the road with the band was a great laugh. But Not, not forgetting that, that Jamming did, uh, was it two supplements that came, one on Liverpool and was the other one Glasgow? Yeah, it was Glasgow, yeah. Um, uh, I, I definitely felt that you, you took the, the the rest of the country seriously. 
Yeah, and you actually, uh, being based in Liverpool, there is this great story that, can you elaborate on this? How did it come about that you were in hospital? <laughs> and, a, and a publicist was obviously so keen for a band to get into jamming that they brought the band to you to interview them in a hospital rather than let the interview get postponed. What was that, what was that story? It's a long story, but um, it was the Pale Fountains, which is ironic because I lived in Liverpool, now from Liverpool. I was in hospital, guy, Guy's Hospital in London, um, but I wasn't sick. It was it was a, a, what's known as a drug trial, um, where you'd go in and you get paid have drugs tested on you. But I think I got nine hundred pounds for for, for, for wow. the drug for the drug trial. So that was like winning winning the lottery. But but yeah, the the, the Virgin Press office tracked me down, uh, and the band all came in with grapes, and and I'm I'm lying in bed with a, a drip in my arm. It's pretty amusing, actually. I, the fact that you were in London, yeah, like you're saying, it was a Liverpool band, and you you were based in Liverpool, but. When when I went back and saw that going through and putting the book together, it was like, wow, was did it matter that much to the record companies? Was our credibility that important? And I guess the answer is yes. I, I always felt that the record companies treated jamming very well. Um, I'm particularly looking back. Um, they, they didn't treat jamming as a, a sort of fanzine. I think that they, they, they took it seriously. I definitely got that impression as well. There didn't seem to be... A hierarchy of you know where jamming was somewhere in the middle at the bottom. Uh, I think they understood the importance of it. It was a grassroots magazine, but had a lot of readers, you know. And also, the readers were avid readers. They would go out and buy records. I mean, that's what you want, isn't it? It's it's you know the the age old thing. Would you soon have a dedicated or small audience that buys? You know, if you're a band that buys your records, or you you know play to bigger audiences that doesn't. And I should also point out, so this hasn't come across in previous any previous episodes, a lot of the publicists were, and a lot of them remain, great people. They're in it for the same reason. They love music, and some of them become find that they're good at being publicists, and they're the conduits. They're the ones who you know, open the minibar door for you. They're the conduits who, you know, tell you, tip you off to the good new bands, tell you that, look, I mean it this time. This group is great. You've got to come see them. Make sure that you're there. I promise I'm not wasting your time. And you would learn to trust some of these people, and they would also become your friends. Paul, you talked about, and this will bring us to the end of jamming, and the fact that I don't believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure that any of you wrote beyond issue 32. At that point, it's ridiculous. I was only 21, but I was kind of like <laughs> moving upstairs or something. And and John was going to become the editor and we were going to appoint a full-time assistant editor. And so, Paul, you very, you almost got the job. You came down for an interview, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was really um, disappointed not to get it, to be honest. But, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles, etc. But, yeah, it was, uh, I got on very well with both yourself and John, and it was a good experience getting that interview, And but uh, it didn't, didn't pan out. I mean, I, I, I did feel slightly better when uh, I was reading that it was kind of John's mate who got the job. So then I thought, well, maybe that's what happened then. <laughs> but I don't know. It it was. And Paul Mather, um, I did get to see him a couple of times in the 90s. And so we, we were able to have conversations. But it seems to me that once John and Paul were editing from that issue 33 for the four issues it lasted, that the three of you were suddenly not writing for the magazine. Yeah, I, that that is definitely the case. Looking back, um, I've got all of the, the, the copies until the very end, pretty much. Well, from from the time I started writing, you know, 15 onwards. And it's a, I had nothing after the, the Robert Smith interview. And I, 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 I couldn't quite figure out why that was. I, it, it kind of did go in a slightly different direction, I think, towards the end. And not just the way it looked. It's difficult to put your finger on it, really. Because when I was going through all the jamming stuff, you know, as you do in the loft, I came across some old diaries and it just happened to be one from the day that John Wilde rang me up and said that jamming had folded and thinking, and it all, you know, brought it all back to me and how gutted I was about it. You know, it's, uh, it came back into focus very quickly. That's very interesting that you got a call to say it had folded, but after delivering a great cover story for us for Robert Smith, you actually never got to write for the magazine again, even though it continued for four more issues. I know. What's that all about? <laughs> that's, a, that's strange. Bruce, were you, uh, same story, really. You were writing for us constantly and then suddenly not writing for us. Was that out of choice? Was it just, I, I, and the same with you, Ross. I want to ask that question of the both of you. 
Yeah, I think I pretty much know what happened to me. Paul Mather and I, we both applied for the job at Jamin, which Paul got. I don't know if I was second choice or third choice or whatever, but Paul got the job at Jamin. And Paul and I also both applied, I don't know if you know this, we both applied for the job of music editor at City Limits. And I got that job. That was the job I got. So I, I missed out on the Jamin job, which I'd have loved to have had. I didn't decide not to write for Jamin, and I don't. And I got on very well with John. John, I'd, I'd known for years, so I'm sure they'd have had me. I think I just was had my hands full with a with a full time job for the first time in my life. And I have to say again, I wouldn't have got the job at City Limits if I hadn't had the. By then, I had a nice big pile of cuttings from Jamin, which I could show them, and I'm sure that helped me land land that job. And then for you, Ross, you're you're also uh, maybe somewhere around Gil Scott Heron is one of your last big pieces. Do you remember what happened with you? I, I don't. And I was slightly surprised looking back that I, I didn't contribute for those last those last issues. Um, but it, it, it did feel like something had changed. It felt different. And I, I, I think I always got on well with, with, with yourself and uh, with Tiny and, and with, with Alan McLaughlin. And I never felt, I, I was always kind of intimidated by, by John Wilde. We were talking earlier about how, the fanzine was kind of welcoming and 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 um, felt felt like open, but by the end it, it didn't. It felt kind of closed, and it felt like it was closed to me. Uh, I mean, I, I'll kind of ask you a question: if 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 you'd have written out those those, those times, do you think you'd you'd have stuck with it year after year after year, or or you think you would have kind of got out anyway? I, I think it lasted its period, and I, I really appreciated what uh, both of you wrote for the book. I know, Paul, you would have written some lovely, lovely things as well. I, I almost gave you the last word in the book, Ross, because I think you nailed it about just, you know, the fact that nobody knows what they're doing. I mean, that's the beauty. Once you sort of start knowing what you're doing, you start second guessing yourself. And uh, I'm not sure that that magazine, that jamming was, was ne- it, it, those last four issues are the closest it comes to being a professional magazine. And for my money, they're not the four most interesting issues. So I think the interesting stuff is still where we're still printing pages wrong. There's some terrible designs. People are going uncredited, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's that fire in those issues. There's that fire in the interviews that I think makes it a better magazine. So maybe I just wasn't cut out for editing a stable monthly magazine. Maybe that just wasn't in my DNA. I mean, I think in hindsight, Jamming had a, a kind of perfect trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it makes for a good book, doesn't it? At this point, all these years down the line, you know, it's like almost exactly 10 years and you can you can see the trajectory. Let's just take a final moment to just uh, circle around on what you've all done. You just like vaguely touched on it at the beginning. I went from writing about music full time to um, writing about TV and, and particularly live comedy. And I know, you know, quite a lot, you know, because there was that thing of comedy being the new, new rock and roll. I think... It was funny with writing about comedy when there was that big boom in London because I think a few music journalists went into it. And I think partly because maybe that had the same sort of spirit, you know, if you want to call it an anarchic or an alternative spirit, comedy had the same spirit. But I also think maybe when I was getting into my sort of 30s or mid-30s, the, the, the thing that comedy had over music was you could sit down at the gigs and I think I was getting to the age that getting fed up, getting a bad back or something, getting a bit deaf, standing at gigs. Uh, so I still go to gigs, but they tend to be the ones you can sit down at. But yeah, the comedy gigs, a comedy club, whether it was in a pub or in a theatre, you'd be sitting down at them. So kind of, I mean, I look back really fondly at, on my time with, with jamming and, and writing about music in general. But it's one of those, it's a bit like the way, you know, the guy that is the lead singer of The Stranglers now has been the lead singer of The Stranglers a lot longer than Hugh Cornwall ever was. But we always think of Hugh Cornwall as being the lead singer of The Stranglers, I'm sure. And it's a bit like me. I like to think of myself as a music journalist. But in fact, I've been writing about comedy and television a lot longer than I wrote about music. It was just such an, you know, it's that thing about being in your 20s and your early 20s. It's such an exciting time that it kind of stays with you forever. And that's why I wanted to take part in this, to sort of uh, relive it a bit and think about it a bit. For yourself, Paul? Uh, yeah, I mean, apart from anything else, that you know, the achievements of Jam in the magazine as as a as a, like a you know an ethos and what it stood for, I think for a lot of people it provided a a platform to do other things. And um, for me, it was the portfolio of work I did for Jam and got me a job with Q magazine, and I wrote for Q for you know a decade after that. So that was 
that was really enjoyable. Um, it's like one of those things as a freelancer, you're often dependent upon your relationship with the reviews editor, aren't you? And sometimes that doesn't go that well. And I kind of fizzled out at the end with Q and not doing so much writing anymore, just some various projects. But I got into IT as a career and, you know, I had a young family. So the there was like a lot of different calls on my time, you know, so there was less time for the journalism then. Now I'm retired and going down the allotment every other day. So, yeah, cool. Ross, do you ever still write about music? Do you at least, uh, do you ever write about the bands that play at your bar? I'm writing a book called Tales from the Phoenix Saloon, um, which, so, so yes, I, I, I do. I, 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 I could not, not write. Good. Does that mean you've been maintaining it over the years, if still just, if, if only for yourself at certain times? Def- definitely. I've kind of been working on sort of three books, which may be one book in the end. I don't know, but um, you get a, you get a thank you in the acknowledgements. Oh, on, on our, so there you, that's wonderful. Thank you. The, um, I want to say to the, about, about the three of you that, you know, we built up a team of reliable people and the unreliable ones, you know, went by the way. So there weren't too many and maybe, I, I I don't know if I want to take any credit for seeing something in each of you, but you were all green lighted and you were all very, very reliable. You know, the copy arrived and it, whether it was by mail or hand delivered from a, off of a train, the copy arrived, the pieces were great. We covered a lot of interesting ground together. Looking back on it, you know, the three of you, along with a couple of other people I haven't been able to track down and a couple of others I have, were really the mainstay of the of a point when we put out the most words, you know, for the longest time. And you all played a, an extremely important role in that. There's some really solid pieces from you. And so if there was a success to jamming, it, everybody played a part and the three of you all played your, your own part in it. So thank you. Thank you. As always, as ever, thank you to my guests for the great conversation. And as always, and as ever, I hope you, the listener, got something from it. Uh, I feel compelled to mention that uh, in the most recent New Year's Honours list in the UK this past January, i.e. just the past couple of weeks, Pauline Black received an OBE. And I'm sure that more than makes up for the fact that we were too dumb and stupid and naive to paraphrase Ross Fortune to put her name on the cover of Jamming 17. Somebody else that was mentioned there who already had a New Year's Honours list to their name is Mike Peters. Uh, Mike Peters from The Alarm is an MBE and that's for his work with music charities, cancer charities and probably a good chance there for me to plug the other podcasts I had running through 2020 and 2021 one step beyond. I had a great interview with Mike about not so much his music, but about the incredible uh, life stories had with um, cancer and um, the charities that he's set up and some of the events he's put on um, to raise money for cancer treatments in areas, uh, parts of the world that couldn't otherwise afford it. So there will be a link to that in the show notes. Similarly, we've had Alan McGee on this podcast already. We were talking about creation records. And yes, yeah, spin back. And if you haven't already and listened to the first seven episodes for my money, they've all been good fun. I mentioned up front that we have some book events coming up. Uh, the book, of course, is The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977 to 86. It's published by Onibus Press. It's in full colour. Um, I'm thrilled with how it came out. feels like one bumper annual sort of fanzine, you know, like, like the kind of annuals that you would have gotten in your Christmas stocking. And I do know a lot of people who actually got this book as some kind of Christmas present. So I hope they're all enjoying it and reliving their days when it would have been a Beano annual or or a shoot annual instead. Yeah, we're really, really happy with the book. And I'd always wanted to do some events uh, to promote it. We couldn't really do them uh, at the end of 2021. And indeed, we have had to postpone one at the start of 2022 in New York City. It was due to take place January the 18th. But uh, out of COVID caution, myself and my co-host John Schaefer from WNYC have decided to pull it off for now. Hopefully we can reschedule it once I am back from the UK. I am fully intending to be in the UK from the second half of February when we have three events in three nights, which is very rock and roll and suitably. The first of them is actually at the Rock and Roll Book Club at the Dublin Castle in Camden Town in London 
on Wednesday, February 23rd. The next day, I'm going down to Brighton, which is a place I also dearly love, and taking part in an event hosted by City Books there, which is being held at the Rialto Theatre. I'm in conversation with the Arts Desk editor, Casper Gomez, but I'm particularly thrilled that I am going to be joined by Guy Pratt as a special guest. Guy, if you don't know him, spin back to episode two of this podcast. He is also, among many other things as a musician, a host of a way more successful podcast than this called Rock on Tours. So that's Thursday, Feb 24th. And the next night, I'm popping down the South Coast or along the South Coast to Hastings, where we are going to take over the Electric Palace Cinema and screen the movie Rough Cut and Ready Dubbed, which is an amazing street-level look at the post-punk scene that Jamming covered. Very rarely seen movie. I had not seen it until we started planning this event. I strongly recommend you come along, uh, not least because it will be followed by a conversation hosted by DJ Wendy May, who was in the most recent podcast. You can find a lot more information on these events by going to TonyFletcher.net or on Facebook, The Tony Fletcher. And again, show notes for further info. I'm going to just give you uh, some shout outs here to Greg Morton over at Omnibus for all his wonderful work on this podcast. I honestly would not be doing it if it was just me. I want to thank my son, Noel Fletcher, for the fantastic jamming uh, fanzine podcast theme music that he put together at very short notice and very professionally. Episode 9 will feature Brian Young from the band Rudy and Jaffo from the band Zeitgeist, along with the group Apocalypse. These were the three bands on the Jamming Records label, which was an offshoot of the Jamming fanzine back in 1981 and 82. Take care until then. Cheers! Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?